0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 298, The Battle of Prome. Last time, the invading Japanese were able to add on to their gains in Burma by taking the town of Tongu on the Sitan River, about 200 kilometers or 124 miles north by northeast of Rangoon though the Chinese 200th Division had tried valiantly to hold it. The Chinese troops, nominally under the American General Stilwell, who himself was more than willing to serve under Sir Harold Alexander as the Irishmen had earned the Americans' respect after a conversation, had agreed to the new dispositions, which left all hoping it would be the beginning of halting this latest Japanese offensive. Alas, Tongu had gone the way of so many other southeastern possessions throughout the last few months. If Burma could be viewed as a chessboard, the Japanese holding the southern end had just set themselves firmly closer to the center. From Tongu Lashio, just over 300 kilometers to the northeast, was threatened, as was the Burma Road, and even further north, the Ledo Road. But also, now the Shan states, to the north and east of Tungu, which had their own access to China, and its people had been well regarded by the British imperial system, were threatened. Yet the largest strategic threat to the Allies now was that their southern defense line was no longer enough. Now the enemy, if they kept pushing north of Tungu, could hit central Burma from the east. Generals Slim and Stilwell, the latter still trying to determine his exact position within the Chinese hierarchy, did not have enough experienced men to hold off threats from both directions. Suddenly, Mandalay, the country's second largest city, after Rangoon, the last royal capital before the British came and the center of life within this reduced Burma, was in play. What made the Battle of Tongu a Japanese victory, partially, was the additional might of the well-equipped reconnaissance regiment of the 56th Division, which had just landed at Rangoon on March 25th. And that was possible because the invaders had recently come to dominate the Bay of Bengal, helped immeasurably by the taking of the Andaman Islands just two days before, on March 23rd. The Andaman and Nicobar Islands, belonging to India, are located on the eastern end of the Bay of Bengal, actually closer to Burma than to India. About 300 miles or 482 kilometers southwest of Rangoon, the Andaman and Nicobar contain 572 islands, but only 37 of them are inhabited, with its capital city being Port Blair, near its southern end. Until 1938, the British, who ruled India, used the islands to house Indian and African political prisoners, which were held mostly in the capital city. The Japanese were mainly concerned with Port Blair, and its control would help them dominate the surrounding waters. The British guessed the island would be invaded if war came, so had its 300 men Sikh force with 23 British officers, Augmented by the 412th Frontier Force Regiment of the 16th Indian Infantry Brigade. But when Rangoon fell on March 8th, local time, the Gurkhas of the Frontier Force were evacuated. This latest Japanese victory was radiating outward, making a serious defense of the islands impossible. The Japanese Empire landed there in March, unchallenged. The occupation would go hard for the natives. For the next three years. Back to Tongu, as the battle there was over by March 30th, Lieutenant General Aida, commander of the 15th Army, continued with his advance. Now the northwest section of Burma was wide open to him, the Western Allies were focused in the upper south and central part of the country. Aida wanted to run the board in the east. Thus, some of his troops and armor were sent across the Tangu Bridge that was left shaky but intact after the battle. The good news for the Chinese defenders who were there was that they were able to move quickly to the north. The bad news was the why of it. They had been forced to leave behind much of their heavy equipment. And, of course, this would affect their fighting capabilities when and if the Japanese caught up to them. As Mandalay was their ultimate target, to control it was to project power in any direction, the Allied troops there were kept off balance by regular air attacks. With Allied air being pushed all the way back to India, the invaders attacked with a large bomber formation on April 3rd that went completely unchallenged. When the bombers left, the city had lost three-fifths Of its wooden houses, along with the former house of the Burmese kings. Lying about now were some 2,000 civilians, all dead. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great That's yahoofinance.com. With eastern Burma falling to the Japanese, not that the pressure from the south had lessened, General Slim's one hope was India. Whatever reinforcements or airstrikes were to come, would come from the west. Unless something disrupted that, which is exactly what the Japanese had already planned out and put into action. A few days earlier, on April 1st, a Japanese fleet, dubbed the Malaya Force, left Mergui of the Kra Isthmus, commanded by Admiral Jisaburo Ozawa, considered one of the most capable of the Japanese commanders. He had already seen action in the Malayan Campaign and the Dutch East Indies. Under his charge, heading for Ceylon, were six cruisers, eleven destroyers, and a light fleet carrier. Perhaps not the most impressive armada, but he would find plenty of targets in the form of merchant ships without any escorts. Within a few hours, on April 6th, 19 Allied convoy vessels were sent to the bottom of the western end of the Bay of Bengal. That same day, Ozawa headed back to Singapore, satisfied. It was victories like this that would see Admiral Ozawa replace as the commander of Japan's carrier forces, Admiral Nagumo, the hero of Pearl Harbor. Ironically, it was Nagumo himself who was now sailing into the same area to replace Ozawa, but with a much larger fleet. Whereas Ozawa had reduced the chances of Burma being resupplied, Nagumo had left the Celebes on March 28th to make for Ceylon to take on a throne together. British naval force, led by Admiral Sir James Somerville. Whereas Admiral Somerville, who had just arrived in late March, had five ancient battleships from the Great War, seven cruisers, again four of them were from the previous war, and 16 destroyers, most of this last were in need of major overhauls, Nagumo was coming with five fleet carriers, four battleships, three cruisers, 11 destroyers, and several supply ships, thus extending his operating time. Lastly, Somerville also had three fleet carriers, but the aircraft aboard those were no match for the Japanese planes. Hence, the British carriers, like the older vessels around them, were to be sacrificed, but hopefully they would take a few enemy vessels with them. This is not to impugn Somerville, but combat technology had simply left his vessels behind. On April 4th, a Catalina flying boat had informed Somerville that Nagumo was coming. Wisely, the British Admiral kept his older battleships out of the expected target area of the Japanese. Instead, he would attempt to pull out of his sleeve a trick, something worthy of the Japanese themselves. If Somerville could maneuver his fleet carriers close enough to launch a night attack, perhaps his ancient steeds could yet pull off a victory. It was worth trying, and it had a better chance than engaging the Japanese during the day. But Nagumo got in the first strike. Early in the morning of April 5th, at the port city of Colombo on Ceylon's southwest coast, Where Somerville's fleet had met up, working together for the first time, it must be noted, was the first target of Nagumo. The Japanese carrier base planes first came in low, strafing and bombing the port and the airfield, to only then use that chaos to bomb safely from a high altitude, not unlike the attack at Pearl. And this attack was just as successful. The destroyer HMS Tenedos and the armed merchant cruiser HMS Hector were struck and sank while in port. Still, Hurricanes and Ferry Fulmars, the latter a respectable plane but unable to deal with the Zeros, were sent up to engage the attackers. The Allied pilots claimed to have shot down 19 Japanese planes, which may or may not have been true, but they certainly lost 19 of their own. Then another six fairy swordfish were added to that number as they just happened to run into the enemy fighters as they were leaving. Thus, in a matter of days, not only was Burma feeling the Japanese coils around its throat, but now India seemed to be open to invasion. But the attack was not over. Naguma was there to do a job. Later that same day, the HMS Cornwall in Dorsetshire was set upon by enemy dive bombers. There, just south of Ceylon, the two British ships went down. 424 men were lost, but another 1,122 were later rescued. On April 9th, the carrier HMS Hermes and the Australian destroyer RAN Vampire were also taken out by dive bombers. Here, 315 men lost their lives, but just over 600 were later pulled from the water. Nagumo figured he had weakened the Allies enough and so turned back for the Malacca Strait in between the Malayan Peninsula and Sumatra. This naval masterstroke by the Japanese had its intended consequences. The Allies had another reason to panic. Never good for clear thinking. More Allied troops would be kept in India to stave off an invasion of Ceylon, or the Indian subcontinent, and thus not sent to Burma. And these naval battles to the west of Burma had guaranteed the safe arrival of another Japanese convoy to Rangoon, which arrived on April 7th. Disembarking the 18th Infantry Division with supplies for the already engaged 15th Army would bring more pressure to bear on Prome, about 100 kilometers or 62 miles due west of Tongu. Fortunately for the British, General Slim had gotten his way, as in the Chinese 200th Division covering Tungu, so brought the two divisions of Burma Corps, the 17th Indian Division and the 1st Burma Division, along with the recently arrived 7th Armored Brigade Group, together. These Brits, Indians, Gurkhas, Karens, Shans, Chins, and Burmese were currently holding back the Japanese 5th Army from advancing any further north. But it was not easygoing. For one, the defenders were low on weapons and supplies for their infantry, and two, Burmese scouts were helping the Japanese find ways around the defenders' lines. In fact, Sir Harold Alexander, in overall command, had already decided to pull Burma Corps back again, to just south of the oil fields at Ye Yang, about 150 kilometers or 93 miles north of Prome which is where the Japanese needed to go anyways. And he already knew how he wanted to accomplish this retreat, by using the Irrawaddy River and river transports to save his men's strength. But none of this answered the main question, how to pull back while the two sides were currently engaged. Again, for a point of reference, Prone is about 100 kilometers, or at 62 miles due west of Tongu, where Burma Corps and the Japanese 15th Army were currently fighting. But it would be more accurate to say that Burma Corps was lined up just south of Prone, as the city itself was to be protected from the invaders. About eight miles south of Prone was the smaller town of Shwedong, also along the Irrawaddy River. On March 29th, Brigadier John H. Anstis, commanding a detachment of the 7th Armored Brigade, had just reached Shwedong from further south, having been on their retreat. To help his cause, not to mention slowing down the Japanese so the Allies could escape to the north, two Indian battalions were sent from Prone to Shwedong. Yet, in the area, actually in overall control of Shwedong, was the 2nd Battalion of the Japanese 215th Regiment, led by Major Masao Sato. Also with him were some 1,300 men of the Burma Independence Army, led by Bo Yang Yaning. With the Burmese troops were two Japanese liaison officers, Hiroyama and Akida. By this point, and it would continue, the BIA or Burmese Independence Army, led by Japanese officers, had already killed local Karens, or Kayin, and burned their villages. The Kayin, mostly in the southeastern part of then Burma, constituted the third largest ethnic population of the country. When the British annexed Burma in 1886, the Kayin were favored by the new master over the two other large ethnic groups, the Barmars and the Shans, and now they were paying the price for that favoritism. As it was the usual tactic for the Japanese to set up roadblocks against the vehicle bound British led troops, the Indian battalions and Anstance detachment attacked one of these from different directions. In order for Anstance and his men, not to mention other British troops in the area, to retreat quickly, these roadblocks had to be reduced. This worked, and then Xue Dong itself was hit from different sides by the Allied units. But just as everything was going the Allies' way, a Japanese anti tank gun scored a hit and destroyed a British tank. As it was currently on the main bridge over the Kala Chong River on the east side of the Irrawaddy, the detachment and Indians were forced to find another way north, namely through an open field. Bo Yang Nying took advantage of this and attacked the retreaters with some 400 men. But this would not be the glorious, revengeful victory against the Western oppressors the BIA was hoping for. Though the Allies were retreating, in fact, this had started out as a general advance to the South to check the invaders, they maintained good order and engaged with the less disciplined BIA troops. By the time Anstis and his, along with the Indian battalions, got away, they left behind 60 dead BIA troops, another 300 wounded, 60 captured, with another 350 missing. Also, the officers Hirayama and Aikida were both killed. In exchange, the British-led troops had lost 10 tanks, two field guns, and 350 men, dead or wounded. Still, by the end of the day, the Japanese retained their hold on Dung, south of Prone. As for the BIA, after this action, it would never again engage in a formal battle, instead settling for terrorizing villages and torturing prisoners. With the limited British offensive having been successfully deflected at Shui The Japanese started an artillery barrage against the prone defenders during the night of March 30th. On a side note, during the limited offensive to the south, a Lieutenant Kildare Husky Patterson and his crew were captured after their tank was damaged. Taken to a Japanese colonel, this officer decided that Husky and his crew were to be executed on the spot. But then the colonel conjured up what he must have thought would be poetic justice. Indeed, the British tank crew was executed, but Husky, the ranking soldier, was tied to a tree that served as a part of the enemy's defensive block. The Japanese officer struck the bigger man in the face several times and then invited his officers to do the same. By the time it was over, Husky was barely conscious, but the ropes held him up. The colonel knew that come morning, the British would shatter this place with artillery. So be it, but one of their first casualties would be their own comrade, Husky. Sure enough, morning came and the shells started landing nearby. But as the men of D-Troop of 414 Battery Royal Horse Artillery of the 95th Anti-Tank Regiment Royal Artillery could see, there was a white man tied to the enemy's position. So they purposefully overshot the location, only then walking back the landing of their shells. It was the best that D-Troop could do to give their comrade a fighting chance. As the shells came ever closer to Husky, the Japanese either put their heads down or cleared out. So when one of the explosions weakened or jumbled the trees forming the block, the prisoners' ropes were loosened. Husky freed himself, though his hands were still bound, and he ran back to his side of the war. The men of D Troop cheered. Again, with Burmese guides, the Japanese who had kept their artillery attack going for the last three and a half days, managed to get some of their troops behind the prone defensive line. This led to clashes in a nearby dry belt on April 2nd, where the dust quickly rose and hung in the air, choking the men of both sides, while making an organized attack or defense impossible. But on that same day, the Allied troops began to pull back. Ironically, it was the battle in the dry belt that not only distracted the Japanese, but also confused the situation enough so they couldn't know if they were winning or not. Between the artillery barrage of the last few days and now this confused fighting in the dust, the defenders were exhausted, but still motivated to retreat. The Japanese were equally played out, despite their superhuman conditioning, and besides, were unsure if they were winning or not. So, they allowed the British-led troops to get away, who were now on the Irrawaddy River, heading north by northwest. By April 8th, Burma Corps was just south of Yi Nangyang. General Slim had designated Magway just south of that town, as Burma Corps' new HQ, and his first order to his men was to line up and face south towards the approaching enemy. Sure enough, the Japanese had designated four regiments to attack this new defensive line. As these men were fresh and the defenders desperate, it would be one of the fiercest battles in the War of Burma. And not making much of a difference, at the eastern end of Slim's line was the newly arrived Chinese force. After Tonggu, Slim and Stilwell were expecting an experienced, well-equipped regiment, a few thousand men. What they received was an undersized, barely equipped, and battered battalion of a few hundred men.